ahead and take your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land, green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to The Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. I'm Tom Sharpentier, Government Relations Director, one of your hosts. Guest hosting for, I believe, his second time is... Sam Olson, uh, Senior Editor for Print and Digital Publications. And uh, Sam, uh, today we've got a, uh, a very special guest from the aerobatics, air show, and uh, air racing community. Yeah, we do. Uh, Vicki Benzing is joining us today, who has a, a wealth of experience uh, flying in air shows, flying aerobatics, and, uh, and racing in Reno. So uh, welcome to the show, Vicki. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Vicky, it's a, a pretty easy question to start off with, but it's uh, it's where we where we start a lot of these podcasts, and it oftentimes gets the conversation rolling. Um, how did you get into aviation? How did, how did you um, how did you get into to flying airplanes and and doing all that? Um, well, my uncle was a pilot. He uh, he owned a pit special, November Eight Lima, which is kind of a famous pit special, and um, he uh, he was a crop duster pilot for a while, and um, and he was a air show pilot and he raced at Reno in 1967. And so, uh, he was kind of, well, he took me flying when I was a little kid. In fact, I was so little that I, I didn't know if those were real houses and cars that I was seeing or toy houses and cars. Um, but anyways, he was bigger than life to me. Um, but I never thought that that flying was something that, I could do being growing up in suburbia, middle-class suburbia. And, uh, and until one day, one of my buddies asked me to go skydiving and I went out and went skydiving and I absolutely fell in love with it. And I was out there every moment I could. And I realized that I want to spend more time in the sky and uh, you have limited time under a parachute. So uh, I, talked to my parents and asked them if, uh, told them I wanted to learn to fly. And my father had a friend with a 1941 Telecraft out of Watsonville, California on the coast. And I learned to fly in his Telecraft. Um, so that's how I came to flying. That's awesome. So you kind of, you got into aviation, uh, starting off by jumping out of airplanes and then, uh, then decided you <laughs> want to stay up there a little longer. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And you know, the moment I got behind the controls of the, of the airplane, I knew that there was a passion that would last for the rest of my life. So, and it has. So when you started learning to fly um, and, and you got your license and, and you progressed through, it, it looks like you, you know, you've got commercial ratings and helicopters and seaplanes and gliders. I mean, did you just want to fly anything you possibly could? Oh, absolutely. Well, there's, you know, I think a really good way, other than doing a BFR, is to go get a new rating. So um, I think the seaplanes came along as a, well, I'll go do that instead of doing my BFR. The helicopter, <laughs> that's kind of a funny story. I uh, based at Stark's Twin Oaks for a time up in Hillsboro, Oregon. And the guys in the hangar, like one hangar over, <laughs> had the helicopter school. And my buddy Bob Ham. uh, had traded a fuel tank for a couple hours in a helicopter, and I had taken Bob Ham skydiving uh, for his for a tandem jump, and so Bob gave me one of his hours in the helicopter, and I hopped in the helicopter, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, get out my checkbook! <laughs> <laughs> I got to learn to fly helicopters." <laughs> 
So that's how I ended up flying helicopters. Uh, gliders, I'd always wanted to fly gliders. Um, and someone gifted me uh, gliders, a glider rating uh, as, um, as a thank you for something I'd done. So I probably had, it was only five years, six years ago. And um, I had thousands of hours in an airplane when I learned to fly gliders. And I, I tell you, <laughs> I learned so much. <laughs> so I, I really believe that gliders is, are a good way to go to, to get your rating, your private pilot rating. Yeah, definitely. There's a, a lot of people uh, start off there, particularly young people, since you can uh, you could solo them at, at, a, at a fairly young age. Um, but you're absolutely right. I'd, I'd really like to go for my glider rating at some point uh, because it is just a completely different world. Yeah, it's like learning learning to fly all over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I know it's uh, it is a little counterintuitive that you can get into a fixed wing aircraft with no source of internal energy whatsoever essentially and stay up there for for gosh hours it's it's uh it is really a, an amazing way to fly yeah i learned to fly gliders in hollister california and no one would think of hollister as a as a glider place <laughs> but i think my first solo i was up for 45 minutes it was amazing wow so talk talk to us a little bit about how your career has progressed because I know you're you're essentially a, a full time uh, air show and air racing pilot now is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So I, I retired from Silicon Valley. I I got my PhD in chemistry at Berkeley at the usual age. I think I graduated around twenty eight or so, and then I did a postdoc up in Oregon and and I was flying by then. I was and I had owned I owned a Gosh, I owned a little airplane by then. I'm trying to think if I owned two of them. I think I might have owned two of them by then. No, just one. And um, anyways, um, I took a job in Silicon Valley, and I worked my way up the up the management chain from from basically just a process engineer. And uh, I retired early out of my career in Silicon Valley because I realized that. You can always earn more money, but you can't earn more time. And I really, I had really focused on my career and I wanted to go pursue the flying, the flying that I had passion for. So um, it happened. Well, I've always been interested in aerobatics and I learned to loop roll and um, spin the little Taylor craft that I learned to fly in. And then I took a 10 hour course in Lily Reed after I got my private pilot rating, but but aerobatics kind of fell by the wayside when I did my career. And uh, many years later, I took a ride with Wayne Handley in his 300L, and uh, he went out and tumbled the plane. <laughs> then I was like, oh, I got to buy one of these. And by then I could afford it. So um, I went out and bought an extra 300 and started training. And, and that's really when I decided to step back in my career. And I, uh, I was a vice president of... Um, worldwide customer satisfaction at that time. And, and um, that involved traveling about three weeks out of four. And I just didn't want to do that anymore. So, um, so I took an individual contributor role and I worked as an individual contributor for, I don't know, about four more years while I did my aerobatic training and competed in contests and um, earned my aerobatic wings and, Started started my air show career and then uh, 
about the same time, our company uh, did a merger acquisition with another company, and um, I took that as an opportunity to leave altogether and and go fly air shows. So here I am, <laughs> retired out of the semiconductor industry and flying air shows. And you and you fl- you fly a Stearman in the air shows, which you know you you mentioned you 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 bought an extra, and and that's kind of what you see. Most of the time in in air shows these days is is extras and and these you know very high performance monoplanes. Well, you fly a Stearman, you know a 1940 Stearman, I believe, a World War II era biplane. What what drew you to flying that style of air show? Well, <laughs> funny enough, I um, I've owned a Stearman for a long time. It was always an airplane that I you know coveted having. So I bought that airplane in 1998 or nine about, and, um, but I never envisioned flying air shows in it. I, of course, did all my training and contests in the extra and I started flying air shows in the extra, but it's a pretty competitive world in the monoplane out there on the air show circuit. Um, you know, there are a lot of very fine monoplane pilots. And uh, one day one of my friends asked me to, bring my Sturman to an air show and fly it. And so I did. And all of a sudden, everybody wanted the Sturman and nobody wanted the extra. So that's how I ended up flying the Sturman in air shows. It, it has its own niche. There just aren't very many Sturman on the air show circuit. Wow. Uh, and kind of what what is, what would you say the key differences are in, in your routine in the Sturman versus, um, you know, a monoplane act? I mean, I guess some of it's kind of intuitive, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a much bigger, slower, but more powerful aircraft. Uh, you know, is, 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 uh, is that kind of where you build from? Yeah. Well, um, I, at first I was kind of disappointed about flying the Sturman because I worked all this time to learn these tumbles and all these fancy maneuvers and, um, and it, they were quite challenging from a G load standpoint and timing and all that stuff. And, um, but by the time I moved to the surface from, because in the air show world, you start out at 800 feet and then uh, 500 feet and 250, then you go to the surface. But by the time I moved to the surface with this German, I realized that even though it only did loops, rolls, hammerheads, those sorts of things, it was very challenging to manage the energy in that airplane. Um, so it's quite different from the extra, extra just, has plenty of energy. It makes its own energy. Um, it's got, uh, you know, it's quite a bit faster and more nimble. The Stearman, you could get yourself into real trouble uh, down low with the Stearman if you're not really paying attention to your energy management. So it, it roll. I fly a two aileron Stearman, so it rolls quite slowly, and it takes me two hands to roll it. And you could uh, you could definitely find yourself in a box down low if you weren't careful with the airplane and you've been flying at at when was your first year uh flying at oshkosh i guess um gosh well i know i flew my solo Sturman act in 2015 so i've been flying um as an aerobatic pilot uh since 2015 okay there was a year before that i think maybe 20 2012 2013 where I flew in a mock air race, a mock Reno air race uh, during the air show at Oshkosh uh, with a group of Reno air racers. 
I don't think you guys have held that too, but uh, that was pretty fun. So what um, what other air shows do you typically do you typically fly at? Where where else can people catch you? I mean, because I fly the Stearman, I mainly fly on the West Coast. Okay. It's a uh, it's a ninety knot airplane, so uh, <laughs> I generally don't get past the West Coast with the Stearman. Um, for a while, I was offering both the Stearman and the Extra. I did make it all the way out to Dayton one year in the Extra, but uh, with the Stearman, I you know Arizona. Arizona, California, Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, Idaho. That's that's about Nevada. That's that's kind of the range for me. <laughs> and my sponsor is the California Aeronautical University, and so they uh, their focus their market focuses uh, California and its neighboring states. So that that's a good pairing for us. And then uh, I guess on the other side of your career, which uh, you, you you just you just mentioned a little bit of, is uh, is air racing. So, how did you get into that? Uh, <laughs> I uh, well, my I have a very good friend, uh, Vicky Cruz, who unfortunately got killed uh, at a aerobatic contest in Silverstone, England. But her uh, her boyfriend was Lee Beal, and I moved from the San Jose Airport down to, or excuse me, from Reed Hillview Airport down to South County Airport in. Uh, San Francisco Bay Area, and Lee based at South County, and and it was uh, just after Vicky had passed, and so we got to be good friends because we had this shared thing that we went through, and um, and anyways, Lee sent me an email one day and said, "Come come out and play in my sandbox," which literally the desert sand in Reno. Um, I went out to Pylon Racing Seminar and. I just, I had a ball. It was so much fun uh, flying around the pylons, low level with the guys. And so um, Lee, Lee asked me if I can find you an airplane to race in the fall, will you come race with us? And, and um, he did and I did. And that was kind of the beginning of it all. So what have you, um, what have you raced out at, at Reno? Um, and I know you've raced in a couple different classes. What, what airplanes have you, have you raced there? Uh, so I've raced, I've raced in sport class since 2010, every year since 2010, of course, not during the pandemic because we didn't hold the races, but, uh, racing sport class, I started out in a glass air three and that was, uh, Vicky Cruz's old airplane, um, the cruise missile. And Lee and I always joked that it had sort of the spirit of Vicky, uh, left in it cause she was quite the prankster and it always, it always surprised me with little glitches um in 2014 i decided to buy my own uh, racer so i bought a lancer legacy named lucky girl so i've raced lucky girl since 2014 and um and the last year last year and this year last year we ran was the first year we ran nitrous and uh i'll be running nitrous again this year and then uh in 2013 my friend rick vanham emailed me and said, Hey, do you want to race a jet? And I was like, Oh, don't tease me. <laughs> it's better be real. <laughs> so, uh, so I went out and learned to fly the L39. I raced the L39 in 2013, 14 and 15. I think I missed 16 and I raced again in 17. And then again, last year, I don't know, maybe 17, 18, I can't remember. I raced jets about six years, I think. 
So altogether, if you like add them all up, uh, even though I've been racing for only 12 years, this will be my 13th year. I've actually done 18 years worth of racing if you count both classes. So this year I'll be racing in the unlimited class with um, the P51 Mustang that I bought from Clay Lacey in 2019 that that uh, finally popped out of restoration just a, about a week ago. <laughs> so I'll be racing that. Yeah, so tell us about that. That that's um that's your latest restoration and um it's got quite a history to it. Uh, um do you want do you want to walk us through that? Yeah, sure. So, um <clears throat> I, you know, I just hadn't done any warbird flying. I don't know. You don't see many women doing warbird flying and I guess I'm not there's there are no CAFs or museums around here for me to help out and earn my wings in a warbird. So, I kind of had to make that happen for myself. So I, uh, I went out the stallion and did P51 training and promised my husband up and down that I wouldn't buy a P51. And <laughs> in fact, he, he bought a little model and put it on my desk. <laughs> so that's the only P51 you'll ever have. <laughs> and then uh, when Clay's came for sale, Clay's uh, a friend of mine. Clay bases up at Pine Mountain Lake and as do I, and we've been neighbors and friends for many years. And when his airplane came for sale, the purple P-51 with the Snoopy on the tail, that was the airplane I knew I had to have. (laughs) With that same certainty I knew that I had when I learned to fly, that I knew that was something I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So it took me about a year to convince my husband and, uh, and I bought the airplane in June of 2019. I brought it to Reno as a static display in 2019 and then uh, took it straight to Fighter Rebuilders to be uh, restored. It had never been restored since it was built in 1944. And I think the last time the engine was done it was in 1976. So it was time for it to be gone through and, and be made safe because I want to take it out on the air show circuit. And, um, I just didn't want it to be breaking down on the road. So I want a good, solid, reliable plan that I can trust. That is a very famous air racer. And we decided to keep it in the air race livery, which is the purple livery. And um, I can tell you the story of that airplane if you're interested. Absolutely. Okay. So built in 1944, never saw action. Um, It uh, got shipped up with a group of Mustangs to Canada to, to be an RCAF airplane. It was up in uh, Sea Island, which is now Vancouver, Canada. And it served up there until, I think it was the late 50s. It uh, it got sold out of the Canadian equivalent of the War Assets Administration to uh, a broker in New York who bought a lot of them. And, um, and it was brokered around changing hands, I don't know, three or four times, but never really being flown. It was looked like paperwork transactions because the title changed every month or two. And uh, until it landed with a, a company that sent it to the Trans Florida Aviation to become a Cavalier Mustang. So it was converted from a military airplane to a Cavalier Mustang, which is um the idea of the Cavalier Mustang was to, to fly executives around the United States. This was, you know, before real uh, fast private air transportation. So it was to fly executives around the U.S. at, you know, high speeds. And 
Um, so it was fitted with all the the modern early 60s avionics <laughs> and uh, the cockpit of poultry and all that stuff. And, um, and then uh, it got sold from that company to a fellow up in Idaho. And at the same time, uh, Clay was traveling through Reno and he saw a flyer for the inaugural Reno Air Races. And he was a young man at that time, probably about 32, 34 years old, something like that. And he uh, he was good friends with Al Paulson, the aircraft broker, who later went off on to found Gulfstream, I believe. Um, anyways, so he went to Al and said, hey, you, you ought to buy me a Mustang so I can race. You ought to buy a Mustang so I can go race in the inaugural Reno Air Races. And and uh, Al said, it just so happened that this fellow out of Lewis and Idaho approached him to uh, to buy his or to trade his Mustang for Cessna 310. So Al traded the Mustang out of Idaho plus $10,000 for a Cessna 310 he owned, which at the time they figured was worth about 17500 So that made the Mustang about 7500 at the time. Wow. <laughs> and that was in uh, 1964. And so at the same time, Al was starting an airline um, called Orchid Air- Airlines or something like that. And it was to go out of uh, Southern California to Hawaii. And his wife said, well, these were all used Lockheed Constellations. And his wife's like, well, if you're going to have this airline name, Orchid Airline, you ought to paint a purple stripe on the side of the airplane. And and so she picked this custom purple orchid color and they ordered 150 gallons and they got shipped 1500 gallons. And so every toolbox, every tool, every ladder and <laughs> the Mustang got painted purple. Wow. And the story goes that um, Fred Smith, who was the founder of FedEx, saw the purple and thought the purple was very catchy. And so he decided to incorporate purple into the FedEx logo. So they, Clay, Clay still tells that story. So anyways, um, Clay bought the airplane from Al, I think in 1967, and paid $12,500 for it. And Clay campaigned that airplane around at air shows. He flew a, a number of air races across the U.S. with it, and also campaigned the airplane at Reno from 64 to 72, and he won the national championship in 1970. Uh yeah, so the airplane has been in an episode of Magnum PI. <laughs> There's a Rebel game named Erasers that has the airplane in it. It's a it's a pretty famous airplane. Wow, quite a history, and and uh, and I love the fact that you know that there's so many. There's there's a lot of P-51s out there in Warbird restorations, and up until recently, there haven't been – there have obviously been the active Reno racers, but there haven't been too many historic air racing restorations, at least not ones that fly. And for a lot of those aircraft, that's you know probably the most prominent part of their history. So it's uh, it's it's great that you've uh, you've brought it back as uh, um, you know in its in its air racing livery. Yeah, so you know it's funny. Uh, there, I read so much on that. <laughs> on the internet, the comments about what people think about delivery. And um, there are a lot of people who remember the airplane and its purple colors. It was always their favorite airplane as a child because of its livery and, and are really thrilled to see it back and it's a root, you know, it's purple livery. So I, that's pretty cool. And, and you're going to be racing it this year is, is, 
Do you plan on, um, you know, wherever Reno ends up after this year, do you plan on racing it uh, in the years going forward, taking it on the air show circuit? I guess, I guess, what do you hope to do with it? Well, you know, for an airplane like that, I really believe that it, it deserves to be seen. Um, so my plan for it is to take it on the air show circuit. Um, I don't know what's going to happen with the future of the air races and where it'll end up. And I guess that sort of remains to be seen for me, but, um, but I do plan to take it on the air, uh, air show circuit. So, and let as many people see it as possible. It's a fabulous piece of history. So. And just, just curious, um, this kind of a technical question. So uh, we're a little familiar with the Cavalier Mustangs here because Paul one, Paul Pope Berezny's P51 is also a Cavalier conversion, which I, yeah, I love that concept that basically back then you could either buy a Bonanza or you could buy a P-51 with a, uh, you know, vinyl leather interior and, uh, you know, second seat and stuff like that. Um, since it was campaigned as an air racing aircraft, does it still have the uh, the, the long canopy in the second seat and the tall tail? Um, is that Was that still retained? So mine never had the tall tail, but it did have the second seat and the baggage door. Those were all done. And, uh, you know, I... I I don't know whether Clay put the panel in or they did at the Cavalier factory, but it was completely IFR outfitted 1960s style <laughs> before the restoration. So, um, yeah, that's what I know about it. Yeah, no, that, that that's uh, that's amazing, and uh, uh, that's a I just think a really cool part of P51's history is that uh, yeah, you know, it was marketed as a. <laughs> Civilian. I know, and there weren't there weren't that many of them that were converted. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. There, there's a couple, and there are a few that had tip tanks. It's really really interesting operation that they did. Mine had uh, had ox tanks in the gun bays. Huh. And I I don't know. I think Clay may have put those in. I think he told me that he put those in, but um. We we built new tanks for it. They were leaking by the time I got it. So we put new tanks in there. And I think each side holds about 30 gallons. So I have an extra hour's worth of fuel. Well, with the, how thirsty the Merlin is, I'm sure it, I'm sure that, that's uh, that's well, helpful. <laughs> that should give me a much better range than my Stearman. For yeah. air show yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> in fact, I'm really looking forward to the trek out to Oshkosh. <laughs> When I bring this German out, it takes me three days each way. So you do plan yeah. on bringing this to Oshkosh next year, then? Um, yeah, I'm hoping Tim invites me in the in the Mustang and not the German. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and I I kind of just wanted to ask this about you know the the air racing mindset you have to have what. What what are the keys, um, you know, both you know, in operating the airplane when when racing and mentally that you have to keep in mind, racing around pylons versus doing an aerobatic routine. What what differences are there? Oh, um, well, you know, aerobatics is all about energy management, um, but racing, <laughs> unless you have a mayday, which is also energy management. Um, Racing, there's a lot that goes into thinking about the starting procedures. Um, 
and this will be my first time in the Mustang, but I can tell you in the legacy, uh, there's a whole routine I have. So boost pump goes on on the runway. I take off, I set the power, I set the fuel flow at, at, uh, full throttle on takeoff so that, so that I, it will be basically set when I'm down in the chute. Um, I throttle back, but I then, and I set the RPM there. I have to 2700, I throttle back and I do the join up. I fly around the backside. I switch tanks to race fuel. Um, in the chute, I will turn the water on. And at the release, the only thing I have to do is push the throttle forward. I don't have to look at the mixture because I've already set it on takeoff. Um, I start, I reach over with the other hand while I'm still flying off of somebody right next to me. Uh, and I never look. I reach over and I, I start dialing the prop in. Uh, to 2,800, 2,850, bars it'll go, whatever. Um, and then not till I get out down on the course and um, have, there's a little separation between racers, Do can I look at, you know, what, what my engine's doing and if I need to lean it or richen it or anything like that. So, so all that stuff has to be done by feel. And, um, and the whole engine management part of it is really critical because we run our engines right on the edge and um, it's easy to, <laughs> to melt them if you're not careful. And all the meantime, you're flying off of somebody else and it's kind of this hostile, hostile formation flying in. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so it's a quite, quite different than air shows where, uh, you set your engine, and then you're managing the, air, the energy between figures. On the race course, it's very, very much about engine management, and flying is almost secondary to the, to the whole engine management portion. I think in the Mustang, it's going to be a little different, but still, I um, because there are, uh, you know, the sort of RPM changes that are going to have to ma be made so that I can access the manifold pressures I want. Um, I will be also facing some en engine management things that I have to do uh, during takeoff and rejoin and coming around the backside and into the chute. I, I'm not planning at this time on changing fuel tanks, but that could change. Uh, just depends on how much fuel we carry. Um, it's a lot about engine management and uh, and some about flying. <laughs> so qualifying on the on the course is of course about flying your best line, and um, and being close to the pylons and not not working the airplane like uh, trying to keep a constant bank angle and a constant G on the airplane to get to you know, keep as much energy in the airplane as you can uh, to keep as much speed. If you load the airplane, you, you lose speed and it takes a very long time to accelerate back to your speed. So, um, so qualifying is an art in, the, in and of itself. But once you qualify, in my opinion, it doesn't necessarily benefit you to fly a really tight line. Um, that gives your competitors uh, predictability to, to pass you. So, um, so it's in many ways, I mean, you need to be tight on the pylons, but you don't have to be 
really, really tight like you do in a, in a qual lab. And I think just a little bit of unpredictability keeps the competitors, makes it much harder for them to pass you uh, than if you fly the same line, then they can figure out where they can pass you on the course every time. So at least that's my how I've seen it over the years. That's interesting. Yeah. So yeah, it is a little bit of tactical flying that, uh, that, that kind of comes into it. Oh yeah. And then, you know, when you, I put a, a rear view mirror in my legacy <laughs> and, and we always watch the shadows on the ground. Right. So, uh, so you can make a little tighter turnaround, a, a pylon, if you have a competitor right off your wing and that'll spit them out. Um, you can, you can approach a pylon a little wide and then cut in. That'll also spit them out. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm giving away all my, but it's last year. So <laughs> it's last year. <laughs> that, that that does kind of lead into um, uh, another question, which is, you, you know, you talked about, you, you talked about how, how, obviously the professionalism that you have when you're flying air shows and, and doing the engine management um, stuff and the, in the, in the air racing and things like that. How do you, how do you manage the balance between that professionalism that, you know, uh, commitment to flying precisely and safely and all that stuff with the competitiveness you have to have for, for racing? <laughs> well, um, I don't do anything that isn't practiced. I learned that from, aerobatics, you know, in the air shows, everything you do is practice a gazillion times. So, <laughs> so I go out and practice stuff before I ever get to the races. You know, I'll practice the start, I'll practice low level flying at speed. Um, yeah. So it's, com it's complete focus. And I, I want to come back. I want to bring my airplanes back intact. So I just, I won't do anything that's stupid. I mean, just out of sheer competitiveness, it isn't worth it. Yeah. Sure, that's fair. <laughs> in the end, in the end, you know, I mean, you're either a professional or not. I think. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. Um, so, okay, so we talked about the the air, the the excuse me the air show flying the aerobatics uh, and and of course your your air racing program. Um, that's you know obviously a really interesting mix of flying. It's uh, it's it's quite a variety. What does a typical year look like for you? Um, do you have kind of an on season and an off season for the air shows? You know, oh, at what point yeah. do you get into air racing mode and start preparing? What how does that look for you? So usually, typically, air shows start up here in California in March. I think my I had two air shows in March this year. I think. Um, so yeah, Southern California and Arizona, they're March and April is about when they start. And then it moves into the middle of California in uh, May, June timeframe. And then up in July, I'm up in the Pacific Northwest. And, uh, then I go out to Oshkosh and that's kind of the break point for the year. I come back from Oshkosh and I have a Another show in Southern California is my sponsor show down in Camarillo. And then uh, after that, I generally don't take any shows between that third week in August in Reno, which is second, about the second week in September, to give me time to, to prep the airplane and, and get prepped for Reno. And um, so then I switched fully to Reno mode and, 
and there's a, a whole a whole bit about getting the airplane ready um, and this year two airplanes ready and in the past I, when I've flown two classes the the um, the other airplanes been the jet and there's you know it depends on the jet but there's not a lot to get the jet ready it's either built as a racer or it's not uh, uh, maybe I'll go do a bunch of flying in it but there's not a lot of work to the airplane to be done um, especially since I've always only flown other people's jets. So um, anyways, I've only had one airplane of my own to work on. This year, we've had two airplanes to work on. So, so, so yeah, there's a big focus time uh, between the third week of August and, and the races to get ready for the races. And then after the races, I finish out my air show season. So this year, I'll have three shows after, you know, um, but typically the air show season can go into the beginning of November. I think last show um, usually that I might fly if I'm invited would be like Nellis, uh, which would be in early November. Although I think Nellis was in April this year. I don't, I don't know. Maybe they're changing things around. But my last show is in mid-October this year. And then we take a vacation. <laughs> 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 my poor, my poor dear husband and crew, <laughs> my poor patient husband <laughs> gets to take a vacation. <laughs> yeah, so one person doesn't do this by themselves. <laughs> it really takes, uh, I don't know, it, it definitely takes uh, some help. In this case, my help is my husband. Well, that's great. And uh, that does sound like a, a very, very interesting uh fulfilling uh and uh and an exciting uh second career for you so um yeah it's uh it's, it's been it's been wonderful to talk to you about it oh thank you yeah you know i i um i think the the biggest kick i get out of it is when i meet the the young kids who are you know go to an air show and are really excited about aviation and um just to see the look of wow on their face and um, ask them what they want to be when they grow up and, and maybe they want to be in get into aviation or, or study one of the sciences. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Absolutely. Well, Vicki, thank you so much for joining us today on, on the green dot. Um, I don't know when this episode will air, but um, I think it probably be before Reno. So um, best of luck and uh, hope uh, we'll be watching for highlights of, uh, of that purple Mustang flying around the pylon. So that'll be really cool to see. Yeah, I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be fun. Uh, and we hope to see you at AirVenture next year with, uh, with with that same aircraft. That'll be, that'll be really awesome on the flight line. That'll be really awesome. Well, thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure to talk to you. I think I did all the talking. <laughs> that's, that's generally how we that's like how we to like go. it. Yeah. Yep. Oh, okay. <laughs> you're a lot. You're a lot more interesting than we are. So that's that's uh, that's, that's a good thing. It's, it's awfully early in the morning for me to be doing so much talking. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Usually, I had to get up and have a cup of coffee before I could talk so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fair enough. Fair enough. Well, yeah. So today, I uh, today I'm ferrying the Mustang up to Reno. So it wasn't too hard to wake up early. Uh, there's a, a lot of adrenaline going right now. Get to meet up with the guys from the Planes of Fame, and we're going to fly up as a four ship. So should be quite fun. 
Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, we won't hold you up any further. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So that's it for us uh, on, the, on the Green Dot for this episode. Um, and um, as always, you can catch us uh, anywhere anywhere you find your podcast for any of our backup episodes um, that you'd like to go through. Um, certainly, if you um, if you like what you're hearing here, please do leave us a review. And if you don't like what you're hearing here, send an email to feedback at ea.org uh, and um, and and let us know your thoughts. Um, but um, thanks again to uh, to Sam for uh, filling in as a host. Yeah, my pleasure. Rob, running our board. And everybody else who's involved with uh, producing and, and distributing this uh, podcast has been a, um, it, it, as always, has been a, a great honor to be involved with this. So um, fly safe, fly often, and uh, we'll see you next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot. <laughs>